Hello and welcome to our Tangent Podcast. I'm Emily. And I'm Gemma. And this time we are looking at women who dig. By that we mean archaeologists and paleontologists. I'm sure there are some other ontologists we've forgotten. Probably. So I feel like this is going to be a lot more of Emily than me because obviously Emily is an archaeologist. Although she just informed me she was drunk for most of her degree and knows nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think most people with an archaeology degree will understand where I'm coming from on that. I mean, us historians are far too sophisticated for that. Not. So... With that in mind, I know you had a bit of a look at the news to find some recent stories. Have you got any to share with us? Yes. So on September the 11th, the Havering Horde will go on display at the Museum of London Ducklands. So the Horde itself is a bit of a Bronze Age mystery. It's the largest Bronze Age Horde found to date in London. And the weapons include axe heads, spearheads, fragments of swords, daggers, knives, alongside some other unusual objects that have rarely been found in the UK. In total, is made up of 453 bronze objects which date between 900 and 800 BCE and the hoard itself will form uh, part of an exhibition. So you might ask why I'm plugging this as an exhibition. I'm hoping it's because it's going to be a saga's trip. I mean I would love to do a saga's trip but I'm not sure that's a, a good time for us to be trying to get to London at the minute. Oh yeah global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah it's, it's not ideal. But the main reason is that the museum's curator of archaeology is Kate Sumner, and we have to support women in the heritage sector as much as possible, especially in this extremely uncertain time, which has seen museums across Britain, as well as organisations like the National Trust, begin the redundancy process. And councils are predicting a 700 billion gap in both leisure and cultural budgets for 2020-21. Pretty much every museum has made some kind of redundancy and people are losing their jobs in every sector. But I think the heritage sector is definitely feeling the hit right now. Yeah, especially, I mean, some places are handling it better than others. I mean, the Tate are definitely getting roasted as they should. Yeah, I think people are rightly angry about organisations where you know, the top chair people on the board are getting ridiculous amounts of money as bonuses while they're having to let go of staff. I mean, the fact that they weren't paying their staff properly to start with was already a bit of a gripe, but, you know, now it's just getting a bit silly. So sadness aside, is there anything else that's kind of exciting in the world of archaeology? Yes. So if you like to read the news, you probably will have seen that the earliest art in the British Isles has been found in Jersey. And it's dated to the Magdalenians, which is an early hunter-gatherer culture, which dates from between 23,000 and 14,000 years ago. So while examples of etched Magdalenian plaquettes, which are fragments of stone, have been previously discovered in sites in France, Spain and Portugal, the engraved fragments found in Jersey represent the first evidence of a artistic expression found in the British Isles and Ireland and they seemingly predate cave art and engraved bone that's been previously found at Crystal Crags in Derbyshire which unsurprisingly I lived near and for me the most interesting part of the find is that they were found in an area that was thought to be a hearth so you can imagine these hunter-gatherers sitting kind of having family time around the fire while carving these geometric patterns into stone. That's really cool. Yeah. 
it's part of the reason that I quite like archaeology. I mean, you've got your history where you learn dates and facts, but archaeology, you find things and you can like really infer what people's lives were like. Although my favourite thing is something being ritualistic. You don't know what it is. Of course it is. I, I guess archaeology is kind of like the, the tangible parts of history. Yeah. Like yeah. I did um, landscape history as part of my undergrad. And um, I really liked learning about like enclosure and what different dips and bumps in, in earthworks meant. Yeah. So I can see why it's exciting. I think for me, archaeology was always more enticing or at least ancient history was always more enticing to me than modern history because you don't really know a lot about it and what you do know has been found from archaeology. So it's, it's a bit like being a detective. You get all these little finds and you have to figure out what they're for and what they mean. So like things like burials, you find out what was important to a person through what's left with them and what you can kind of guess about their thoughts on afterlife as to what's left with them, whether they think they might need it in the next life or... It's the most, you know, most expensive thing they own to them. They're buried with it. You know, if they didn't believe in an afterlife, they probably wouldn't bother with putting stuff in a grave with them either. You must get really frustrated when things are taken out of graves and things by people who aren't trained archaeologists because you lose the context then almost. Yes. Like, that must be really frustrating. Yeah, I remember being on, it's not my first dig, my second dig, and I found a, a Roman pot. And I went to lift it up to see if I could get the whole pot out. And I just remember everyone just like yelling for us to stop because obviously it was in context. You needed to leave it. So that was, that was a little bit scary. Um, but I, that dig was really good fun and we learned quite a lot on that one. The one that I'd done before was a, le- a lottery heritage one, a funded dig. And that was on a Iron Age hill fort. And we found um, found human remains, and that was a bit of an experience. That's where I check out. See, I think archaeology is fascinating, but the second I had to touch a bone, I would be off because that skeeves me out. I cannot deal with it. I know I've said this before, but I just I have this insane fear that the person the skeleton belonged to will somehow track me down. See, it doesn't really bother me too much. I mean, this person wasn't buried there. They'd, what we can infer from it is that they were killed during a fight because the hill fort wall had been toppled on top of them. And I think the saddest part of it was that it was a pregnant woman. So there was fetal bones within her remains. So that was probably oh, the saddest part. But that, in finding her, she was able to be removed, you know, and kind of treated with some respect. Whereas before she was kind of obviously just kind of thrown into a ditch join a fight awful really yeah like as it as a historian everything comes to me in books or manuscripts and it's all neatly written down i don't have to think about that it's definitely more personal i would say okay so i'm not an archaeologist and as we've heard bones are a big part of that but i do like an archaeology film talking the mummy indiana jones tomb raider is it actually like that Please tell me you get to punch Nazis. I mean, probably not in your day-to-day work. More a hobby. <laughs> More a hobby, yeah. It's not. I mean, I love those films. And I think Indiana Jones was probably the first thing that I watched before getting interested in archaeology. But it's definitely not running around temples being chased by cults, you know. Not really what happens. So you don't all wear fedoras and or booty shorts and crop tops or whatever it was Lara Croft was going for? That does not go as PPE on site. There is not a hard hat in sight. 
No, it's no high vis. Yeah, I'm not sure a high vis would really complement a Lara Croft look. No, they're very much grave robbers rather than yeah, you know, archaeologists. I think that's probably the thing that makes me laugh the most about the Indiana Jones films is him yelling about something belonging in a mu- in a museum, but also grave robbing. If you haven't listened to our After Dark podcast on curses and relics yet, I reckon we could link a lot of that through this, because we looked at the Ark of Covenant and the Spear of Destiny, both of which have cropped up in more than one archaeological-based movie slash TV show. Like, I love Relic Hunter oh, I've never and the Librarians, both brilliant. But it's always that, all these artifacts have some sort of supernatural power mm, yeah i mean after like listening to our after dark you can kind of understand why people thought they'd have this oh yeah definitely yeah it's extra power which is obviously played upon so is indiana jones your favorite fictional archaeologist i think so i think him or evie from the mummy oh, that could just be because that's rachel wise but you know he's an egyptologist she takes up bones does she not yeah, but she specialises in Egypt. Oh, I told you there were some ologists we missed. <laughs> I genuinely don't know. Says so the one with the archaeology degree. I didn't specialise in ancient Egypt. That was another course. I, like, like, I always thought it was just like in together and then you just got sent to dig somewhere. No. I looked at Neolithic. I looked at Viking. I mean, I did my undergraduate dissertation on Viking boat burials. Is that where you flirted with the man in the museum to get the information? Yes, it is, and it worked perfectly. (laughs) Even my friend was impressed. It was brilliant. You gotta do what you gotta do. It was useful. Sometimes you just, you know, you have to flirt to get information. So, if you could dig anything up, right? Like, if you were gonna, if you were given carte blanche to go and just dig anywhere you wanted, what would you like to? try and find um, probably more boat burials because my undergraduate dissertation looked at the scottish isles and whether or not you could see what part of scandinavia vikings had come from and settled out through different boat burials but at the time i was doing my undergraduate dissertation there wasn't quite enough evidence whereas now i think you know five six years on there might be more information there. I mean, there's more information all the time. And boat burials are just really interesting to look at in general. Yeah, maybe I've watched too many movies, but didn't the Vikings put people in the boats then set them on fire? Is that a myth? Uh, like the pointy helmets? I mean, they might have, but they also buried them inside the boats. Was that only Vikings of status? They, from what you can find inside them, Yes, because if you imagine that they're probably being buried in a boat that they own. To own a boat would be very expensive. It's like the um, Sutton home is a boat burial, but that's an Anglo-Saxon boat burial. And they think that was a king. Um, one of the boat burials that I looked at was for a Viking princess. or Well, they say it's a princess, but she was also, you know, outfitted like a warrior. So she's one of those. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, she's one of those ones of, was she a shield maiden kind of question. I think if I was going to go try and find something, maybe just because we've looked at pirates recently, like I'd, I'm fascinated by underwater archaeology at the minute. I watched, there's this program on, I think it's on Disney Plus, about they, they like drain the ocean. I think that's what it is called. Obviously, they don't really drain it 
and then they can tell from how the ship is what position it's in how it's sunk and things like that oh yeah stuff like that's really interesting I mean, I got Disney Plus to watch Star Wars, but I'm not going to lie, I've watched a lot of documentaries on there. You probably have watched the one on Atlantis. I find that... I may have done. ...really interesting as well, because obviously that's underwater of archaeology, find, you know, missing things, like missing places. And, oh, isn't there somewhere in, basically in Alexandria, where they found parts of their, uh, the port there that yes. sunk into the sea? I find it really interesting, but... I'm not big on diving, so I don't think that's uh, kind of nixed it for me in that way. But they um, did some diving in the Caribbean, not not on that show, on something else I watched, and they found these pirate ships, and for a long time they couldn't work out why they were at the angle they were at. Yeah. And then they had, like, a, a guy who was ex-military or ex-navy, and he was like, oh, what they've done is they've sunk them deliberately and made a barrier, like a blockade. Yeah. Because the water would have been shallow and nothing else would have been able to get in or out. And I was like, wow, that's really clever. So yeah, I mean, pirate treasure would be kind of cool to find. True. Um, I know I recommended this year, and it wouldn't be a tangent podcast if we didn't somehow mention Star Wars. It's true. Would it? It's become a thing. So um, I think we mention Star Wars daily. If it's not mentioned, it's a gif. Oh yeah, you are good at gifs. There's a Star Wars comic with an archaeologist, which I'm dying to read. Oh, that's, that's my one plan that, for the weekend. That's the one that you told me about. Dr. Afra. Yeah, archaeology and Star Wars. I figured you'd enjoy it. Exactly. I mean, archaeology and Doctor Who with Doctor Who song. Yeah, and that, that was my point. It's amazing how archaeology shows up. Like, the last thing I expected was to find an archaeologist in Star Wars. I mean, it makes sense because I, I guess in a couple of the books they have, like, people who collect relics from the Empire. So I guess, I guess it makes sense. But it's amazing how archaeology has worked its way into things like Star Wars and... Doctor Who. And wasn't there a mention of archaeology in Star Trek? Probably. It seems like it's that wanting to know more about ancient civilizations that will kind of fill us into everything, really, doesn't it? So we assume that every other possible race would also want to do that. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of cool, though, like to think this idea of archaeology is like spread far and wide. So obviously, when we were researching After Dark, I obviously looked at St Helena, who is considered the first archaeologist, really. She found lots of relics to do with Jesus and his crucifixion, including the the true cross and the crown of thorns, and somehow she found some straw from the stable where he was born, which we're still sceptical about. Very sceptical about. I mean, she found a crown of thorns. I mean, really? Really? I think it's about... Just about believe that maybe she found a cross. Three, technically. But you know, when stuff's buried, you know, it decomposes. So Yeah, but they're kind of magic because of yeah. Jesus. Sure. Just be glad she didn't find the holy foreskin. Oh no one needed to find <laughs> that. Not one person needed to find that. It makes me so happy how how much you love that. We've already found out that no one else likes it. Just you. <laughs> I'm not saying it's something I enjoy. I just find it interesting mm-hmm. that archaeology kind of coincided kind of with the rise of Christianity. But I mean, I feel like it probably predates that. Like yeah. she might just be the first we've got details on. Yeah. Cultures were digging up whoever came before them long before the Romans. Yeah. I mean, quite a lot of their folk- folklore comes from discoveries of past civilizations. You know, I mean, we've got, 
you know, stories about giants that have come from mislabeled archaeology finds. Um, they just didn't know what they yeah. were at at the time. It wasn't necessarily in the modern sense, like how we see archaeology, that the Romans had a fascination with what came before them. I guess we all kind of want to know what came before us. Yeah. Do you have some female archaeologists or paleontologists or Egyptologists, if you want to get into the ologists that you're particularly fond of? I know that we said we would find two each, but I had to be an overachiever and I've got three. I reckon you could have done this podcast without me, to be fair. No, fun that way, though. Is that because you miss me? Sure, I'll go with that. Okay, come on, tell us about some of these archaeologists then. Okay, so the first one that I was looking at was Margaret Murray. So she was born in July of 1863. And in 1894, she became one of the first students of the new discipline of Egyptology. So in 1899, she was appointed to a junior lectureship. And that made her the first female lecturer in archaeology in the UK. And this was at uh, UCL or University College London. But while they were taking pride in their progressive attitude, UCL didn't appoint its first female professor until 1949. A big gap. Yeah, so only a little bit progressive, just just a a little bit. (laughs) Just a smidge progressive. Just make them a little bit happy. So it's worth noting that Murray's life and her career may have had a significant influence on Tessa Verdi Wheeler, as she would have known Murray during her student years at University College London. So Murray is often thought of primarily as one of Flinders Petrie's assistants. She sometimes acted as his assistant in the field where she proved herself an accomplished draftswoman as well as an excavator. But while back home at UCL, she took on much of the teaching and administration while Petrie was away excavating in Egypt. But she also conducted her own excavations in Malta, Menorca and Palestine, published a long list of scholarly articles and books on Egyptology and other archaeological subjects. Why have you raised your hand? (laughs) I didn't know what some of those words meant. Which words? I didn't want to interrupt your flow, but what's a draftswoman? So they would produce plans and technical drawings. Okay, cool. It's a posh word. We like a posh word. We do like a posh word. I just think we should explain it for people who aren't archaeologists. Fair. And for me, because I was confused. Murray only once excavated in Egypt with Petrie at Abydos in 1902 to 1903. In her autobiography, she records with some indignation a test that Petrie set there, sending her out by herself on the first day to lead the workmen across the site. The men at first ignored her, uh, mainly probably, you know, because she was four foot ten, and they refused to follow her uh, or her orders. However, she marched them back to camp and insisted that they lose a day's pay. And after that, she had no further trouble. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. She published prolifically throughout her long life, producing on average at least one article a year, as well as a large number of books, with a total publication list of over 150 items. Initially, her journal papers were on various aspects of Egyptology, but later expanded to include the archaeology of other areas, as well as folklore, ancient religion, and she even wrote about witches. She was an active supporter of the movement for women's suffrage, She was a member of the Women's Social and Political Union, led by Emmeline Pankhurst, and she participated in the first procession of protests to the Houses of Parliament in 1907. So she was basically just a badass all around? Pretty much. She 
wrote about witches yes witches in egypt or just witches in general witchcraft in general she wrote quite a lot of books about it she was known to be quite an expert on the subject as well at the time so within ucl she was a constant advocate of the interests of women both staff and students and she also supported the interests of women from outside the college. For instance, during the First World War, she became an active member of a committee set up by Elise Inglis to bring Serbian girls to England to train them as doctors. It was an organisation that was later known as the Yugoslav Medical Women's Scholarship Fund. Her feminism extended into her scholarship, which included studies on various aspects of women's lives in ancient Egypt, including social conditions, the roles of women in religion, which, as she recounts in her autobiography, were regarded by Petrie and others to be too unpleasant for women to study. And from her own autobiography, we learned that she had a mischievous sense of humour. And in her account of an occasion when a suffragette invigiled herself into a special lecture by Lord Helding, chained herself to a chair and entirely disrupted the lecture, she writes, and this might read as a bit of a confession, it never transpired how that invitation card with the suffragette's own name on it ever reached her. It only shows that young males, even though brilliantly clever, should not pit their wits against an organisation run by women. In 1935, she retired as assistant professor of Egyptology. I mean, she just sounds cool. Yeah, very much was all for women's rights. I just love that men didn't think that a woman should be looking at a woman's role in ancient Egypt. It was unpleasant. I rolled my eyes so hard at that, I think I broke them. <laughs> I can just imagine her little sneaky smile. She's writing down a suffragette's name to send it on to her so she could get in. Yeah. See, that's who we need an archaeological film on. Definitely. As much as I love Indy, don't make another bad Indiana Jones film. Let's make one on her. All female archaeology. Bit like... Uh, a bit like Ocean's 8, but archaeologists. But instead of taking things and putting them in museums, they take things from museums and put them back where they should be. Or, you know, they go out, find things and give them to the correct country's museums. Probably better than stealing the, the marbles from the British Museum. Yeah. Also, if that ever happens, it was not us. Mm -hmm. Just no. putting that out there now. We have an alibi. I don't have the physical strength to even carry them, so... I am but a weak and feeble woman. I could not have committed this crime. Exactly. That's what I'm sticking to. <laughs> I mean, I felt the weight of the bag you carried around uni. I don't believe that for a second. Shh, I'm trying to establish my alibi. I made you go and look at the topic. So I'm assuming that it's you've not... a couple of people. I looked at uh, some women who dig and started with Mary Anning, who's remembered as a paleontologist and fossil collector and fossil dealer. Um, I've been reliably informed that you shouldn't call paleontologists archaeologists or archaeologists paleontologists because it makes Emily do that thing where she gets like a an eyebrow twitch. Mary Anning's really interesting. She grew up in Lyme Regis and like her whole family went out and found fossils and that's kind of how they supplemented their income. So at 15 months old, Mary survived being struck by lightning. She was being held by a neighbour and the lightning hit the tree they were staying under. But because Mary was being held by the neighbour, she survived when the neighbour didn't. And some people said that her intelligence and curiosity were down to that incident. So I guess it's like paleontology superpowers. Emily's frowning at me, makes me nervous. 
I mean, as far as superpowers go, that's not the one I'd be going for. True. If it was to control dinosaurs. Getting struck by lightning, I'd at least want to be super quick like the Flash. So fossil collecting was part of Mary's life from childhood. That's kind of how her family uh, supplemented their income. Due to the French Revolutionary Wars, the rich couldn't travel to Europe. So instead they holidayed in Lone Regis. And while they were there, they would buy fossils that had been found by people like Mary and her family. And whilst it kind of started as like a, a hobby by the 18th and 19th centuries, fossil collecting was very in vogue. Her father died when she was 11, and that obviously meant the family were facing financial uncertainty. Initially, her mother Molly ran the fossil selling business whilst Mary and her brother went and collected them. In 1821, Molly wrote to the British Museum requesting payment for a specimen. By 1825, Mary had assumed a leading role in the family business. <laughs> In 1911, Mary and Joseph dug up a four-foot ichthyosaurus. I have no idea if I pronounced that right. Skull. And a few months later, Mary discovered the rest of the skeleton. Henry Host Henley paid them £23 for it. And in 1820, one of their best customers, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas James Birch, held a auction for the Anning family after he discovered that they'd been burning their furniture to keep warm. The auction raised £400, which would be around £30,000 today. Although how much of the money the family actually received is kind of unknown. It does seem to have made them more financially secure um, and it also brought them to the attention of the geological community. Mary continued to support herself selling fossils, mostly in vertebrate fossils which were common in the area and sold for a few shillings obviously the bigger and rarer the skeletons they sold for more but finding them was dangerous they could only be found after a landslide and in 1833 mary was almost killed during a landslide which sadly killed her dog trey in 1823 she found a paleosaurus and in 1828 she found uh, what has been called the flying dragon and that was displayed at the British Museum. Despite her limited education, Mary read as much scientific literature as she could find and would hand copy papers borrowed from others. In 1826, she was able to buy a home with a glass storefront for her shop, which was called Annings Fossil Depot, and it drew geologists and fossil collectors from Europe and America. So despite how many fossils she found and how many paleontologists and geologists came to her to identify what had been found, the only scientific literature of hers was a letter she wrote to the magazine of natural history in 1839. And as a woman, she would not have been allowed to join the newly formed but increasingly influential Geological Society of London. Mary became increasingly resentful of the men who published scientific articles and never mentioned her name, despite how much she helped them. By 1830, the demand for fossils and the lengthening gaps between big finds saw her once again facing financial troubles. Luckily, in December of 1830, she made a major find, the skeleton of a plesiosaurus, which sold for £200. Sadly, she died uh, aged just 47 from breast cancer in 1847. Her contribution ended up actually changing scientific thinking about prehistoric life and the history of the Earth, so she's quite interesting. I think it's really interesting that she didn't have any kind of formal education yeah she was church educated which you know church isn't necessarily big on evolution evolution yeah like at all no okay i'm guessing you have more women to look 
yes i have got more my second lady is connected to my first choice as well so my second choice was tessa verney wheeler she was born on the 27th of march 1893 and she read history at university college london between 1911 and 1914 where she may have been influenced by margaret murray she met her future husband mortimer wheeler in 1912 and they were married in may of 1914 but her husband's fame outshines hers following the first world war her husband got a position at the national museum of wales and they both moved there together they excavated several welsh sites from the beginning it was a partnership between the two of them she was the excavation director and he was a principal investigator and after her husband's promotion to the london museum she stayed in wales over the winter of 1926 to undertake the excavation of a roman site that they'd planned together tessa started lecturing at the same museum as her husband in 1928 and together they established the new institute of archaeology in 1934 and that's still something that is prominent today in archaeology training students on excavations in particular virilanium and maiden castle may be her greatest legacy she instilled in a generation of future archaeologists the careful controlled approach to excavation that she developed alongside her husband and it would later be known as the wheeler kenyan method so the technique draws its origins from Mortimer Wheeler's work and it was later refined by Kathleen Kenyon but it has issues when it's used on a large site and causes issue with site stratigraphy. Wait 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 what was that word and what does it mean? So the stratigraphy I hated stratigraphy I hated it but it's basically talking about the layers of what you find and how different things can um, cause layers to fall in one another and how you figure that out. Tessa is remembered by those who experienced working under her as a supportive and encouraging. Uh, she offered a strong example of the correct way to do things on site. She taught women that went on to have significant careers of their own, including Kathleen Kenyon, Margaret Guido, Molly Cotton, Margaret Dower, Joan Duplatt Taylor, Beatrice Ducardi, Veronica Sutton Williams, Alwyn Brogan, and Mary Leakey. She sounds impressive. So it's a shame when they're overshadowed by their husbands or brothers or uncles or fathers. Yeah, I think a lot of the problem is that Mortimer Wheeler became this big TV personality. But it's nice to know that even if maybe the media didn't see it, that they believed themselves to be a team. And he still Yeah, and that's almost more important. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Dame Kathleen Kenyon, to give her her full name, is actually the second woman I looked at in depth. As if we planned it. I mean, we didn't. No. I guess you might have had a sneaking suspicion I'd have gone for a biblical archaeologist mm-hmm. So Dame Kathleen Kenyon Was born in 1906 And she was the eldest daughter of the biblical scholar Sir Frederick Kenyon Whose work I've actually read And he was later the director of the British Museum Which her childhood home was attached to I mean, come on If that's not the dream, what is? So Kathleen grew up as a tomboy And liked to go fishing, climb trees, and played a variety of sports. And she was known as being hard-headed and stubborn. I feel like we'd have got on quite well, not just because she lived near a museum. Her parents were determined that she and her sister would be well-educated. And she was a good student and won lots of awards at school. And she was excellent in history. Later, she remarked that her father's position at the British Museum was particularly helpful for her education. She studied at St Paul's Girls' School, where she was head girl, and then she read history at Somerville College, Oxford. She became the first female president at Oxford University's Archaeological Society, and she graduated in 
1929 and began her career in archaeology. Her first role was as an assistant and photographer on the 1912 expedition in, in Southern Rhodesia run by Dr. Dr. Gertrude Canto Thompson. She then worked excavation of a Roman British town from 1930 to 1935, which was run by Sir Mortimer and Tessa Wheeler, who Emily just looked at. And when Mortimer and Tessa left, Kathleen was in charge. She uncovered a Roman theatre, which is the only one of its kind in Britain. She also spent parts of 1931 to 1934 as a member of the Crowfoot expedition to Samaria, which was her first work in Palestine. From 1935 to 1948, she worked on a number of sites in Britain, also became involved in matters of administration and organisation. Involved with the Wheelers, 1937 establishment of the University of London Institute of Archaeology for which she was secretary from 1935 to 1948 and then acting director from 1942 to 1946. She was credited with holding the institute together during the war years um, largely by force of personality which is an amazing quote in 1948 to 1949 and again in 1951 the ex excavation of the Phoenician and Roman site at Sabratha in what is now Libya in 1948 she began a seven-year tenure as the treasurer of the Palestine Exploration Fund an organization which remained involved with throughout her life. In 1951, she became the director of the British School of Archaeology in Jerusalem, a position in which her organisational gifts were again utilised to good effect. The school was officially founded in 1919, but languishing from a lack of funding until 1951, and then it came to a new prominence under her directorship. She worked on several important sites across Europe, but here was an excavation in Tel Sultan which was Jericho in the 1950s that established her as one of the foremost archaeologists in the field. The fact that an important biblical story was attached to Jericho made it an obvious choice for the pioneering of archaeology in Palestine to test the usefulness of the new discipline in supporting the biblical version of history. Work on the site, which began in the 1930s, uncovered collapsed walls and evidence of fire. These walls were identified as those of the biblical period, and Jericho became a touchstone for the movement to use archaeology to support the history contained in the Bible. By the time Kathleen arrived, much of the work had been done to the Near East, which sought to revise the theories which had been established in the 30s. The most surprising discovery at Jericho, however, was evidence of extensive domestic architecture dating back to the 7th millennium BCE. Carbon-14 testing yielded a date of roughly 6,800 BCE for the earliest Neolithic occupation of Jericho, making it the oldest known community in the world. The discoveries at Jericho led to a new understanding of the importance of urbanisation to early civilizations in the Near Eastern region. In 1962, Kathleen was made principal of St Hugh's College, Oxford, from which she retired in 1973. From 1974, she was the honorary vice president of the Chester Archaeological Society. And uh, Max Mallowan recalls from their time together at the Institute of Archaeology, quote, woe betide those who opposed her or were not of the same mind, end quote. She just sounds fantastic. And I, I also read a story that people were frightened of the ginormous dog she would have roaming around with her. I mean, that's one way to end an argument. Just ginormous dogs. Yeah. I mean, it worked for Sansa in Game of Thrones. Exactly. I find biblical archaeology fascinating. I very much believe that Jesus was probably an actual person and, you know, a lot of events that happen in the Bible can be traced back to actual events. Don't believe the religious aspect of it. I believe he was probably a preacher. 
because there were a lot of people like that preaching a lot of different religions at the time. It was normal. But I don't necessarily think that all the magical aspects of religion happened. You don't believe he turned water into wine then? No. Uh, I, I agree that that's kind of like why I really like biblical archaeology. Again, to Disney+. Plus. There's a programme called Uncovering secrets of the bible or something like that i can't remember the exact title and they can trace different archaeological events that's fascinating to find that like walls coming down could have been an earthquake or a fire which would have been quite common if people lived in wooden huts and things yeah it's fascinating really so i know you're an overachiever this is your field of expertise do you have somebody else to tell us about i do and we're going a little bit uh more modern with this one so Teresa singleton was born in 1952 and she's a former museum curator at the smithsonian and the south carolina state museum and an associate professor professor at Syracuse University where she was teaching anthropology and historical archaeology and her interests according to her little blurb that she wrote about herself include historical archaeology, African dysphoras, museums, North America and the Caribbean and in 1980 she became the first black woman to earn a doctorate in the field of historical archaeology and African-American history and culture from the University of Florida and for her lifetime contributions to the field she was awarded the Society of Historical Archaeology J.C. Harrington Award in 2014. And to de- even to this day, she's the only black person to have that honour. So throughout her career as an archaeologist, she's combined her research interests with developing museum collections, exhibitions, lectures, workshops and publications. In 1994, she and Elizabeth Scott broke new ground with the founding of the Society of Historical Archaeology Gender and Minority Affairs Committee. And several years later, African-American archaeologist Maria Franklin published on the lack of racial diversity in the field of, and archaeology's effect on the African diaspora. Today, Teresa has published lots of work in books, journals, edited volumes that address the history of African-Americans. And earlier this year, she wrote about the use of former plantation homes as wedding venues. And I'd never really in-depth thought about that as a problem. And it really hit home to me that when she was growing up, she was told that people like her couldn't even visit the gardens of these places. She would have been three when Rosa Parks was arrested uh, and the Civil Rights Act wasn't signed until 1964. I mean, she sounds amazing. Yeah, definitely. Her work looks really interesting as well. But She's still alive? Yeah. Still going. That's, that's so cool. But yeah, when I was reading this article, I think it's from January, they were talking about people using plantation homes as wedding venues. I mean, I can understand why people would market that as a wedding venue. Yeah. You know, I imagine they're quite beautiful, but, you know, you don't think about the links that those places have to slavery. And I think you can almost transfer that over here to stately homes that people use for wedding venues. I mean, you know, how was that stately home built? I mean, yeah, you want to look, you want to have your wedding in a really beautiful setting. But actually, how was that place that you've gone to built? Was it built on slave trade? You know, was it built by East India Company? Yeah, it gets a bit icky, doesn't it, the more you look at it. I wonder if that's an indictment on us, we're kind of detached from it. I think we do. I think we see it as a pretty building and don't really think about the actual history. I know kind of we looked at it as especially in RMA. How many people go and visit these stately homes and really actually think about how the money was made? You don't think about it, do you? You just think, you're pretty. Definitely left me with food for thought. 
so I wanted to share. Yeah, that's the trouble though, isn't it? I, I think like you don't, you almost don't want to look too deeply because then something you enjoy gets tainted. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely found that with the British Museum. I grew up and my dream job was having a job at the British Museum. And, you know, now I've learned, uh, you know, I've gone through my education and it actually makes me feel a bit icky especially considering the fact that they're not really addressing the issue. Fine if a museum addresses the issue, fine, but they're just blatantly not. Yeah, it's definitely one of those things you need to just put your hands up and say, yeah, okay, this is an issue. This is what we're going to do about it. I guess the trouble with someone like the British Museum is if they gave one thing back, they'd have to give a lot back. They would have to give a lot back, but also, you know, that's where having your providence of your items comes in because some things may have legally been bought from other countries or the countries don't exist anymore so then obviously that then gets a little bit gray area as to who it actually belongs to you know arguing it's a bit like um work really does it because let's look at the marbles i mean technically that might not even be a legal acquisition not to tangent too much but i I also find it really fascinating when um because obviously we know the the nazis looted a lot of art and antiquities from jewish families like i find the washington protocols quite fascinating like this idea of repatriating the the painting or or antiquity back to if there is some of the family and i think sometimes we forget that yeah it might look like a pretty vase or a nice painting but it's got memories attached i think sometimes we think oh why should we give it back it looks good in a museum but we forget that it can mean a lot somebody like if somebody came over and took the crown jewels and then they were like well we've we've got them now you're not getting them back there would be outrage yeah tangent it's not really a tangent because it's still technically archaeology based this is true i mean as a very wise woman said to me once archaeologists didn't exist museums wouldn't have stuff to display it's true (laughs) you also didn't say stuff no i didn't we'll go with it though we'll go with it we'll go with stuff so we're going to try and stop the tangents and wrap it up as always we love to hear from you so get in touch with us via social media or our website the links will be in the description and tell us who your favorite archaeologists are your favorite paleontologists egyptologists the ologists you know back me up have you been in an archaeological dig have you done an archaeology degree back me up on the fact that you were drunk most of the time so coming up we have lots um next month's blog posts are on egyptian queens and as there are five wednesdays in september that means you will have five posts we also have our two historic housewife posts which aren't on the list because i only just remembered them uh one of which is going to look at court makeup in the tudor period we also have our tangent podcast which is going to be on women in comic books and it's international podcast day so we will be doing a podcast for that and because it'll be almost a year since we began the blog that's going to be a look back at the last year and highs and lows next month's after dark we'll look at witchcraft and magic we're taking a chronological approach to that so you're starting with prehistory and then i'm taking over from christianity onwards so that should be spellbinding we also have a bonus after dark podcast coming and as we have been doing for the last few months we're going to have um some social media posts um one a week they're going to look at our favorite fictional or some of our favorite fictional characters quite a lot coming next month buckle up the only way that we can put out so much content is with your support and there's lots of ways that you can help to support us 
you can like our posts share them and tell us about us and if you're able to you can support us on patreon and we recently made it even more affordable with a one pound monthly donation that'll help us pay for our tea and book habits it's kind of like a tip jar so as always on our tangent podcasts we're gonna end it with a quote and this time i got to pick and i of course went with indiana jones and the quote that always made me laugh when i started to study archaeology and it's we do not follow maps to bury treasure and X never, ever marks a spot. Until next time, make sure to take care of yourselves and each other. Thanks.